So our first talk today is uh, Searching for Life on Mars. Uh, the speaker is Ro Bartia. Uh, Ro Bartia is a scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's been there for about 20 years. He received his U uh, PhD from USC in 2013, right? Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> um, he uh, is a member of the Deep Under Life Life Underground uh, from uh, the NIA, run out of USC. Uh, Yana Mend is the uh, PI of that, and um, he's the deputy PI of Sherlock, which is an instrument on Mars 2020. Uh, with further ado, here is Ro. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Luther. Um, and thank you all and Vlada for inviting me to this. This is really cool. Um, and get to talk about our favorite subject, searching for life on Mars. Um, and I'm going to start off by stating that life exists in fractures. And this is something we want to get across to everybody here, is the way that life exists in the subsurface in these, in these, in these environments that are uh, nutrient limited or in extreme environments are basically like by living in fractures. So I want to tell you things that you should take away from this talk. Right? And I want to go, I want to get you some few points here. One of the things I want to state is that life tends to clump in fractures and voids. It's not just a bunch of like a mass of, uh, of microbes and bacteria basically spread out evenly over the, over the surface. It's basically they're, they're going through fractures and voids. And getting the spatial context combined with chemistry is necessary when you're doing detection. Right? There is no one best method of analysis. Um, each technique has its unique capabilities and its challenges. Right? So, Instead of saying, okay, well, I want to use this uh, instrument versus this instrument, you want to actually combine the two. They have some uni unique capabilities by combining them. And we'll go into some of this as well. And then the other statement is, what targets, one of the things I want you to get out of the talk is, like, what targets can you measure to search for life, and what are the challenges of looking at those targets? Like, how do we actually define life, and how do we actually go through and understand where, um, what you should be looking for, what one should be looking for, and the techniques associated to it? Um, this is an image uh, from Antarctica that actually kind of highlights the fact that cra uh, these uh, that microbes and life exist in cracks. It's basically a crack of a rock from an endolith, so a sub su slightly subsurface layer, and you can see these microbes are just basically hanging out on top of these little grains. They're about a millimeter in size, and they basically are um, just kind of sitting in the cracks and voids and areas. They're not, and they're not spread out evenly over the area. They're basically just in clumps. So, <clears throat> what do we know so far? We have signatures of life on Mars, or, well, the, what signatures of life do we have on Mars? And we started off by going to Vikings, as Vlade was talking about earlier, um, and said, okay, well, we're going to go look for life in the way we understand it in 1975, which was a very myopic or uh, naive perspective, which we were going to feed the surface with uh, nutrients and see what happens. And there are four experiments that happened on Viking, and none of them were conclusive. Um, what they did sort of suggest is that there was a highly oxidizing environment. Um, so then we went back again in, um, to Phoenix, the northern latitudes, and ran another GCMS and had a sampling analysis system. And it basically also showed that there was an inconclusive evidence of organics, but it did detect the oxidides that were actually being uh, observed early in, on Viking and defined them as uh, perchlorates using the uh, electrochemical and uh, conductive assay uh, analysis of MECA. So more recently, <clears throat> we have Curiosity, or MSL, however you want to call it. Um, and in this case, you have another GCMS, and you have this wonderful sampling system that actually shows that we do see organics. However, it's altered by the perchlorates that are present there. And so we have yet to, what we've defined here with the combination of 
um, the mineralogy from Kemen uh, and the um, organic analysis from Sam, that this is an environment that's habitable, right? And so that's what curiosity is really defined, as well as with orbital assets. But to understand whether there's potential signatures of life, we have to go beyond just bulk analysis, and we have to actually understand how those organics and how those minerals are actually arranged. And so what Mars 2020 is doing is actually think of it as a spectral rover, or a spectral rover, or a spectral mapping rover. And it has three different instruments on it. Two of them are on the arm, which do high-resolution mapping of organics and minerals and elements. And one of them is on the mass to basically give you remote sensing of, uh, or near-surface uh, sensing of uh, mineralogy and how it's distributed in organics as well. So if you, so let me give you the importance of mapping for a second. So if you're going to search for a biosignature, um, one of the questions is if you look at these samples, where would you start? And which one of these particular things actually has living systems in them or has a potential living systems? Now I kind of give you a cheat here. So this is a cold seep carbonate sample, subsurface ice from terrestrial environments, and TISNT, which is a Mars meteorite. Um, but what's interesting about this is you still, we still don't know where you would start by just looking at these samples. You could bulk all this stuff up and find organics and microbes in them and say, okay, well, we see them. But in TISNT, if you do that, you may find that you find microbes in it, but it's contaminants from the, south, the outside of the surface or contaminants by just microbes crawling inside the surface. And so the question is, how do you actually target a potential secondary or tertiary analyses? One of the things that we're pushing or talking about is actually how do you map? And so this is a fluorescence map of this carbonate, and what you see is that there's layer features here of organics, right? And those layers are actually humics that are in the that are that are found that are basically in this carbonate. And the question is, it doesn't define life. It doesn't say those are living features or even that they were deposited by living systems, but you can now target your analyses to those locations. You don't have to look at the full bulk rock, right? And you can sort of say, okay, these are native. They're not contamination. They're actually associated to the rock. In the subsurface ice, these fluorescence maps are basically, again, showing you where you should target something um, to go to further analyses. And then TISNT, one of the nice things about this is that there was a, a large number of analyses done that were bulk that basically described a uh, pyrimidine-like structure in the in Tissant, which sort of suggested there was hydrothermal activity in this rock or presented in this rock. And using Raman and fluorescence analysis, you can actually see that the pyrimidine feature associated with this ring stretching motor in Raman actually follows a, um, a mescalinite uh, boundary, which shows a um, the pyrimidine most likely formed during a shock process or some slight heating with the small organics around it, and it formed pyrimidine at these low these slightly low temperatures. But it was done by shock. It wasn't a biogenic sort of formation. And so the power of mapping is pretty extensive or significant. And what we're trying to do is say, let's go beyond just saying, here's the inventory of organics, but how are they distributed? All right. So if we went to Mars and picked up a rock or went to the subsurface like we want to, we would love to see this but that's not what we're going to see. <laughs> so if we saw that, we'd be like, oh, yeah, sure, there's life there. No, we're done, right? But it's more like this. Um, and this is a sample from the South African mines um, uh, that this is the type of SDM images that you get. And this is after hours upon hours of like scanning around samples from the subsurface, um, uh, samples from the subsurface. And you, your brain basically goes to, oh, those big globules over there are are actually the organics, and they are carbon, right? But they're not the microbes. The microbes are these little guys over here, right? 
those little things. These little tiny ones are the same as these big ones. So what actually, it, what you're actually looking at is the majority of the carbon in this area is not microbial, right? The features are over here. These little, these little guys, and they're pretty predominant. They're, this Desulfurutus bacteria is like incredibly popular in the subsurface, um, but that's a different talk. Um, so, but it gives you an idea that. First of all, microbes, these are, they're clumps that they all kind of gather around, right? They're not distributed evenly over the surface. It took a long time to find this particular area. And then second of all, there's not a lot of them, right? All right, so we search, through we search for life through biosignatures, all right? So what is a biosignature? We always talk about biosignatures, potential biosignatures. And so I'll give you a quick definition. It's a substance as an element, isotope, uh, molecule, or phenomenon that provides scientific evidence of past or present life. Right. So we have two methods that are generally stated as bulk analysis methods and mapping methods. And we've been predominantly in the community using bulk analysis methods because they're spectacular. They give you a lot of specificity in terms of the ability to detect a, a molecule of interest, a biomarker, and things like that. And so you have detection, identification of specific molecules, ratios of specific organics, organic inventory. It's a really spectacular capability. But you lose spatial context. You lose that mapping capability. So the mapping instruments, things like Raman, XRF, SIMS, SEM, EDS, microscopy, those are great at detection, identification of, of certain elements, and provide spatial distributions of molecules and elements and provides morphology combined with chemistry. However, there's catches to both of these, right? So again, it's not a matter of better or worse. It's just a matter of one does one thing and the other does another. And what a bulk analysis system does is it ingests a sample. So think of MSL. It basically takes a sample, crushes it up, and throws it into his backpack. And basically, there's an extraction process. It concentrates it in text material. And so what's awesome about it is that you can actually get, you get these organics separated and you with this chromatographic methodology. And you allow yourself to get really nice separation of mixed species. You observe at very, very sensitive levels because you don't know where the organics or microbes or organics are distributed, so you concentrate everything around and you basically get the capability to detect part per billion or part per trillion levels. However, as I keep talking about, you lose this mineral organic con spatial context. And that's a, that's a key point for understanding micro uh, if microbes or if life exists in this environment. You also have cross reactions and alterations for the matrix are possible, as we see on MSL. The perchlorates do affect the system, right? Salts do change the ability of getting a particular organic into a phase that is detectable by some of these instruments. All right, from a mapping imaging perspective, it's really simple. You shoot a laser, pew pew, on a sample, and it basically get a detection signal, and you move to the next volume. And I do mean volume. I don't mean area. And the reason I mean volume is because all these systems, whether the infrared or the UV, you get depth of the sample. Whether it's hundreds of microns or a millimeter, you still see a volume of material. And that'll be important in the next slide. But what you do is, you again, maintain these organic spatial contexts. And you basically allow detection down to a single cell per volume. And that's the capability. You don't want to necessarily have to have a single cell per volume. It is very difficult. It requires a 100 micron sort of view of the world at a time. However, small volume analysis is a problem. You need to illuminate the material of interest to detect. If you're looking for something over here and the clump of microbes are over here, well, you're kind of hosed. Right? You're not going to see it. It's not going to be up in the sample or in your detection volume. And so you have to find a means by having a search criteria to say, I'm going to look at a sufficient amount of volume to actually see something.
Um, and then identification in mixed systems is difficult because what you're doing is you're taking a sample, illuminating it, and you're seeing whatever your particular methodology sees well, right? You're not going to be able to see everything and you're not necessarily going to be able to pull everything apart from one another. And that's the challenge with uh, imaging and mapping systems. You can increase the space of resolution to the point of ridiculous and you still have at some point something's mixed, right? All right, <clears throat> so if we take in the, the deep biosphere, and unfortunately Penny Boston's going to talk a lot more about this afterwards, um, and fortunately, rather, and um, I just kind of give you some numbers real quick. Like, so in the deep biosphere and the subsurface ice environments on Earth, the bioload isn't the same thing you go outside and look at. It's not 10 to 6 cells per cubic centimeter. It's 10 to 3 to 10 to 4 cells per cubic centimeter. Now, what does that actually mean? So if you assume a single cell, a fat and happy one at that, has about 200 femtograms of carbon in it, right? At one picoliter of water for perspective. And a rock has a density of 2.5 grams per cubic centimeter. You can start to get a perspective. There's not a lot of material that you're looking for, right? So let me give you an idea. The, this is distributed in a, what the question is, is like how is this material distributed? How are the microbes distributed? If they're distributed in an even distribution, right? So you have a cubic centimeter over here then you'd have basically every half by half by half millimeter area would have one microbe in it, right? And so you'd have 10,000 cells in this cubic centimeter and you'd only have basically, they'd be separated by half a millimeter. Well, in a bulk detection method, you don't care. Just chunk it all up, extract it out, and say, okay, here it is, right? And this is what we do for microscopy. We, in some micro, we, for filtering for microscopies, we take a sample, spin it down, put it onto a filter and say, okay, we want to see this area. But if you're trying to do in situ looking at the surface of the sample, right, as a cubic centimeter, you basically have to have single cell detection capabilities. And for a given half by half, mil half millimeter area, a cube, you need about 1,250 analyses to, to see one cell, right? Um, but to see the whole, to see all the cells in this cube, you need about 10 million, right? So this is a, a very difficult situation, but this is not reality. Even distribution of microbes and organics are not what we see, and especially in the subsurface. You see clusters. And all of a sudden, again, the bulk analysis is capable of detecting it, but you don't need the knowledge of, you don't need to have, you lose the knowledge of like where those clusters are and what they're associated to. Um, and for the scanning, you don't need the single cell detection capability because you're looking at clusters of organics and microbes. So. The key isn't to say, well, throw the bulk analysis away. It's to actually say, use a scanning and mapping methodology to find something, then take that particular locate thing and excise it and look at it with the bulk analysis because the two combined are powerful, right? So <clears throat> to give you an idea of this life in fractures and voids, we have a uh, ice uh, core from, Frick, uh, from Frixel. This is a glacier in Antarctica. And your eye immediately goes to this area, right? And says, oh, there's a piece of sediment there. There must be stuff in there, right? And you're like, well, that's pretty good perspective. You can see it's actually in a fissure and a crack. Um, and it's a good, it's a, it's a great starting point. We use visible images as a means to actually focus our attention. But again, if you, f if you use a, a technique like fluorescence mapping and Raman mapping, you combine them to see this, that the particle over here the sediment has definitely have a lot of microbes in it and a lot of organics in it, but they're shooting out in all different directions, following cracks and fissures. And 
The point is that you're not necessarily just looking at this, you're actually looking at where they are and how they're actually surviving this environment and what they're doing. And so it's not that life is going to be evenly distributed. It's actually the fact that life is actually in, in fine locations and in clusters and um, points. Another example of it is in the subsurface area where you have cracks. Um, life in fractures here, you have 10 to the 4 cells per square centimeter on a fracture surface, right? The sessile populations, those that are attached, is about 1,000x greater than the number of planktonic cells, those are in the fluid, on the borehole water, right? So there's a lot more material sitting on the surface, and they're all in these cracks and fissures. And just for uh, perspective, because of the nutrient environment in this environment, the nutrient source in this environment is very slow, the doubling time is also very slow. Like Ken Nielsen at USC has said many times, if you replicate in this low nutrient environment, you've just made a competitor. Right? So you don't want to divide unless you really have to. All right. So to give you some idea about defining life and what do we look for, NASA's definition is life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Well, that's excellent. I don't know how to detect the Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what we do have an idea about is we know how life is on Earth, right? Um, we know it contains DNA, RNA, proteins, fatty acids. It's got key biosignatures like hopanes and, and isotopes and things that everybody can sort of put their finger on and say, I think this is a biosignature. And there's a lot of debate about that, and that's not the discussion that I'm going to have today. Just saying that we know what life is on Earth, and we should be looking at things that are associated to these, um, and we should look for biosignatures. But one thing to note is that we're continuously learning about life on Earth, but we're also continuously learning about uh, abiotic systems on Earth and how abiotic systems can mimic life and how confusing the two can be, right? So it's not just to know how life exists on Earth, but how natural systems or abiotic systems can actually mimic life or what the differences are. There's a non-Earth-centric approach of, uh, of life detection as well, which is more of a general perspective. Say, okay, I'm not looking for a particular molecule. I'm not looking for a particular biomarker because I don't know what the, that particular life on another planet may be. So I'm going to say, assume life is not the only solution, that there may be another set of amino acids, or maybe another set of molecules that actually, instead of nucleotides, you have different sort of means of like creating a memory or a, um, a data storage system. So what you're looking for are detecting patterns that are indicators of life. Again, you're not doing one or the other. When you're doing life detection, you should be doing both. Your systems that you put together should not necessarily say, I'm only looking for DNA, RNA, because you'll miss this potentially. And if you just do this, well, why wouldn't you do this? We know how to do that fairly well. So, all right. So, astrobiology, the astrobiology community has put together this thing called the Astrobiology Ladder. And it's actually on the NASA website, an astrobiology website. And I think it's an it's a in-development process, and you can go to it and add your favorite instrumentation, your favorite methodology, and what the, the, the Excel spreadsheet or the spreadsheet as there shows is a general set of like capabilities or measurements and it talks about their benefits of problems or challenges and if they're how how well do they do life detection and everybody should be able to fill this type of thing in so um, one of the things they call out is growth and reproduction so what do we mean by that so i'll give you a sort of perspective of this via this movie from El, uh, mo el najar's lab so this microbe basically sitting there all of a sudden shoots something out of it right it's a uh, basically a nanowire that's just shooting out of it, right? This is really cool. But if I see that, I'm pretty sure, especially since I know these are protein stain, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to 
be confused whether that's living or not, right? The probability here is that this, it's life, right? So this is something that's an active process, and this is using labeled fluorescence microscopy. If you, well, that's cute. Um, <laughs> so in a metabolic sort of mentality, you have this, uh, this other image that basically shows uh, Schuonella consuming manganese oxide, right? And this is, this is a, this is not real time. This has been definitely accelerated, but it's about 100,000 to hundreds of thousands of times faster than abiotic processes for reducing manganese oxide, right? So the microbe here catalyzes life here. It catalyzes the reaction to a reduction. And again, you would see this and you'd say, okay, I'm seeing a process over time that is happening and it's got to be a living system or it's likely a living system. So it's a high probability of living. This is using time-lapse DIC or differential interference microscopy, but you can, for rec uh, ancient record mentalities or uh, rock record mentalities, you can basically use SIMS like to actually understand the redox of gradients and see met metabolic activities. All right, so you can go into the other part. These two in the latter are basically pretty definitive life, right? I can see that, I can see an action, and I'm gonna say that's living, right? As soon as you get to functional molecules, you're, pre pre you're saying that I'm looking for life that I know exists on Earth, right? And so what you have are things like DNA and proteins, and the techniques you have are the whole omics, the genomics, the proteomics, or methodologies, the mass specs that are out there, the Raman systems that can be used in some cases, infrared, CE. These are methodologies that can see these materials and easily say, okay, here's the presence or even sequence them, right? And if you see this, you would say, okay, well, I have a microbe there or something that's living. It's the way I, it looks like life as, as we know it, right? What you also can go down to further down the rung of the ladder is basically potential biomolecule components. So if you're looking for PAHs or fatty acids or again, these biomarkers like hopanes or amino acids, these are systems that you can see that, that do exist, but they do exist also in meteorites, right? So you can get like a meteorite sample with a bunch of pHs and amino acids in it. Murchison, for instance, had 75,000 different species of organics, right? Just naturally formed. They aren't, they aren't um, formed by any sort of like biogenic sort of process. And so what you're looking for are trying to find features like hopanes that may be a unique biomarker or other features that are unique biomarkers, but again, you're looking at the component and sort of trying to extrapolate back up to what it was at one point. All right. And these general indicators are more generic, right? So chirality, for instance, all right? Well, chiral molecules are, are used, there's a preference in the right-handedness or left-handedness associated to um, the, uh, the particular um, microbe that you have or the particular life you have. You typically generally use one. Um, so you look at that, that racemization aspect. And if you're looking at organics on a natural system or something that's abiotically driven, rather, you'll get a, something that has a distribution of organics that's thermodynamically driven, right? And life utilizes a particular set of organics. That set of organics, you don't have to know a priori. You just need to know if you do an inventory that there is a set select organic set. If you look at basically elemental abundances, you can see variations and say, okay, look, there's a, there are features associated to um, this particular, there is layering associated to the sample that created a gradient that isn't naturally occurring, should not be naturally occurring. That was most likely, most likely microbially mediated, but definitely not necessarily definitive. In this particular case, you have a Raman map of showing 
minerals and organics and you're saying, okay, the organics follow a particular set of like uh, veins, and the probability is that this is layered through some depositional process, but I don't have definitive light detection here. Again, this is a more generic sort of, I see a phenomenon, I'm interested, let's go further and detect some, let's use this to detect whether there are other features associated to it. So this allows you to do stuff with um, mass spec, uh, local chromatography, XRF, Raman mapping, um, and those are sort of general indicators. All right, so, all these particular organics that we talk about are, are awesome because they can be both, well, so the organic detection that we have to determine whether there's life basically comes from a couple different methodologies. One, you can get abiotic synthesis. Other one, you can have life. And so from an from a abiotic synthesis, you basically have meteoric infall that have, um, or natural planetary processes that basically have um, pHs or amino acids, nucleic acids, is basically chemistry gone wild, right? On life, you have a very organized sort of set of chemistries, basically these um, you know, microbes, proteins, DNA, amino acids, nucleic acids, fatty acids, but all discretized, right? Well, that's excellent if you're looking for extant versus like uh, uh, native processes. But then you add in some time pressure and heat, some geological time pressure and heat, you throw in a bit of cosmic radiation, some UV radiation. The UV radiation would be less if we're doing subsurface, obviously. And then you basically end up with an altered product, right? So this is a problem because now you're not just looking at necessarily the organics. You're looking at some altered product that may not be in where you expected it would be, right? So it may not be an organic that actually is in place, and I'll show you an example of that in a second. But to highlight this, one of our postdocs, Greg Wanger, basically took a, a sample of a cyanobacteria and said, okay, at room temperature, this is what a Toph Sims looks like, right? And so you have a bunch of great organics that are very indicative of life, right? At 129 degrees, you kind of lose some of it, but you still can say that there's something there. And at about 200 C, you end up with just pHs. I can't tell the difference between this material and that of what was actually from meteoric infall. So this is the challenge that we have. How do you take this and deconvolve it to say it was this, right? All right, so to give you another perspective here of the power of mapping, utility of mapping, in this particular slide, what you're seeing is a, um, a stromatolite. When you look at it, it's an ancient stromatolite. Basically, if you map it or image it in SEM, you see these very microbial body-like sort of features. Right? And, you're, and if you do isotopic analysis, you get additional features that state that it definitely is the redox gradients here. And there are, this, is, this was once a living system. Now this guy from the South African mines, again, is an, odd, is an oddball. You'd assume, because you got a hopane signature there, is that there's a biosignature of a very a circular looking feature, right? What actually is the fact, what actually is the, the story here is there used to be a biofilm that biofilm migrated through the rocks and fissures in the into the subsurface, interacted with uranium, radioactively pyrolyzed the organics, and created a basically encasing of this, right? These are not microbial signatures. They're basically a means by which it, it trapped the organics and uh, ensured that, that there was a survivability of the organics. But these used to be elsewhere, right? So, it's the presence of the fact that you have hopanes and the CN, strat, a CN a carbon and nitrogen features that you can say that this is a biosignature, but it's a biosignature that was formed in some place, then migrated, and then was basically trapped in this unique environment. 
And so the point here is that the mapping gives you a story. The mapping gives you a story as to actually deconvolve what exactly actually happened. And it's the power of combining mapping, spectra, mapping with spectral analysis. All right, so in conclusion, I hope you understand that t life tends to clump in fractures and voids. That's some key point, and getting the spatial context combined with chemistry is imperative. There's no best method. Um, leveraging the clump nature of life to coupling imaging uh, to cu life and coupling imaging to bulk, to bulk methods rather is uh, the ideal choice. And use both terrestrial focused targets, DNA, RNA, proteins, amino acids, as well as non-Earth-centric approaches to search for life. But there's challenges ever, even then, right? What do you do in altered states? So that's all I've got. These are my acknowledgments. I would like to really thank the folks in the Life Underground effort, uh, the P-Star and the M2020 Sherlock folks to actually put all this stuff together. There's a cast of thousands. I will not go through all of them. But any questions?